how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome back to the show. In this episode, I sat down with screenwriter, director, and actress Emerald Fennell, best known for her new films Saltburn and Promising Young Woman. She also has credits for the show Drifters and Killing Eve as part of season two. In this interview, we talk about Promising Young Woman, the very enticing film with the shock ending from a few years ago, as well as her new film Saltburn. In Saltburn, an Oxford student finds himself drawn into the world of a charming aristocratic classmate. Let's just talk about why you can't write only on the page, how writing and acting can be related in terms of crafting character and stories, what it's like to carry stories with you for years, and of course, how to craft epic endings. This interview will also be on the Creative Screenwriting website. Here's my conversation with Emerald Fennell. I suppose I spent my life writing, really, ever since I was a child, so it kind of, it's something that I would be doing whether I could make films or not, or write books or not. So um, when I left university, I, uh, I, wrote, I wrote lots and lots of screenplays, um, which, you know, never saw the light of day, rightly, because they were definitely not... I was certainly finding my, <laughs> finding my voice. And, um, and then, in, and then I, I published three books... Um, wrote and published three books kind of in the hiatus of Call the Midwife, a show I was on. So I'd shoot six months of, of um, Call the Midwife and then in the hiatus I would write a book. And then my last book, Monsters, which was an adult novel, um, an amazing showrunner called Jessica Knappett wrote it, um, read it and asked me if I'd like to write on uh, the fourth season of her amazing comedy, Drifters. And so... Um, and so I was always writing. Um, and I think I had that thing that lots of screenwriters have, which was, you know, I'd, I'd had a few projects like Bought, a comedy bought by Fox and, um, and a drama bought by the CW, um, and that, which, you know, in the end didn't go. But it, it's, it, it's a sort of constant process of nearly, of nearlys, you know, until you finally get that first credit, which Amazing Jess gave me. Um, and from then on, you know, I... I I wrote and directed a short film called Careful How You Go, which went to Sundance, and that was the thing that meant I pitched Promising a Woman and was able to get that made. And and um, and then obviously I was writing on season two of Killing Eve. So it 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 was it was an, it was kind of working constantly in parallel with my acting work writing. Yeah. You, does that variety help you be prolific, kind of shifting from screenwriting, directing, acting, doing a, a variety of things, writing novels as well? Does that help you kind of always have something going? I think that really what I always wanted to do is what I'm doing now, which was write and direct. And I think that I didn't, you know, it's, it's a very difficult job. I suppose to get into or at least I didn't know exactly how to do it uh, you know 
in England we have a great tradition of like drama schools, but they tend to be for actors and it tends to be theatre based. We're, we're increasingly now, we have film schools, but it wasn't something that I even maybe really knew about when I was a teenager. And so I knew I wanted to make my own things. And so what I was doing was anything I could to learn, to to write, whether it was, you know, publishing books, whether it was as an actress, I was I was just wanting to, yeah, to get to the stage where I am now, which was to be able to, to direct my own work. And it's, um, I think, I, you know, my hope is that now I, I'll be able to kind of focus more on just this thing, which is, you know, because it's wonderful to have the variety, but actually, particularly with two small children, um, you know, you need to be able to focus, I think, on one, on one thing. Nineteen month old now too, so it's you do. Yeah, it's is it your first old. one? First one. How are you feeling? Right How is it? Okay, okay. It's I mean, it's tough, right? Yeah. But also the best. Also the best. For yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How did your acting influence your writing? And imagine it would help with the way you write dialogue or think about characters to some degree. Well, also to me, they kind of come from the same place, I guess. So when I was, when I was little, in my whole life, when I was little, I would have, you know, I'd just make up stories, but in the stories I'd be all the characters, you know. So it was kind of, it was both in my head and sort of acting. It was just like, you know, like having a split personality or something. You'd be like, one minute you'd be, I don't know, whatever I'd be at the time, sort of age five, serial killer or cheerleader or bewitched snowman or you know whatever whatever it was and they, and so it kind of it came from the same place and i think that it's it's very very helpful very helpful to have been an actor because i think that you know you you start to there's a rhythm there is a rhythm to speech there is a rhythm to each character's speech and so you can't just write on the page I try as much as I can to write only in my head for years. I mean, years and years and years. I go over scenes, I live in houses, I live in worlds. I know I've written Saltburn. The scenes in Saltburn, you know, they've been, it's been seven years of living in those scenes. And I try to preserve that feeling until the very last minute when I know that it's finished, then I write it down because it keeps that kind of human quality, I think. The moment you start working purely on paper, it just changes the nature. It's a very, it's a different thing working on paper to, to speaking. So um, that's what was very useful as an actor. I, I would often find you could tell when scripts had been reworked and redrafted on paper a lot because they stopped having that natural rhythm of speech. People stopped having individual voices and started to have a kind of screenwriter's voice. So that's something I'm very careful to kind of always look out for. I'm thinking about you writing all these spec scripts earlier, living with a story for seven years. Do you just, is it just that it takes the time that it takes? Because so many, so many writers get frustrated with, you know, first draft isn't perfect or whatever it is. Like, how do you think about the longevity of a project? I don't know, it's, it's just, it's basically, I will be in these places, living in these stories f for years, and there are always a few of them. And they're at various different 
you know, some things go, some some things don't work, and they just you don't keep going, and they kind of naturally kind of drift off. But there are some places, you know, that you can't help go back to. And the process I've learned, it just takes it just takes as long as it takes. And I know when something's ready because it's kind of a physical feeling. I know it's ready, and um, and it keeps the frustration. It means that the love for something and the kind of vitality of it kind of stays really for me because I. It's. It's it's a kind of yeah. It's it's the opportunity to sit and dream, basically, which sounds so twee, but it's true. It's kind of. Um, it's not, of course, there are so many frustrations that come with, you know, with writing, with making things. But I think that, again, if you're not working on the paper, you're less hard on yourself because it's not like, oh, shit, I'm staring down the barrel of draft 18. You're on draft 600, but it's in your head. So it's less, so it, it still feels exciting it still has erotic potential it's still funny because you're not then just looking at it in black and white as this sort of artifact and so I think that really helps and it's also part of the development process I mean for me I won't show anything anyone anything until it's until I think it's as close to finished as it can be before actors come on board so nobody will know anything they won't know a single thing they won't even know the title and that's part of the same thing is that the moment the moment you start, it, it's something, you know, if you pitch an idea, it's always quite difficult because then when you, by the time you deliver something, people are already really familiar, they're already a bit bored of it, they thought it would be a bit different than the thing they actually see, and so it's a bit, it's a bit of an anticlimax, whatever it is, you don't have that. When you hand in a full script that is finished that no one is expecting, it's a close approximation of what it's like to go and see a movie. You know, and that's kind of part of the joy for me is like delivering an experience for people, um, whether it's delivering that first draft or, or making the film itself. Is it difficult to live in darker stories? Like I'm thinking about Promising Young Woman, which is a relatively dark story. I mean, it ends the way it ends, but is it is it troubling for you to live in a story that is to be a little bit darker that way? Well, I think it's more troubling to live in a world where these things happen all the time. I mean, it's more troubling to me that Promising a Woman contained things that were in every comedy movie that I grew up watching. Um, it was distressing that the things that happened in that film were just completely, were completely and utterly normal for so many women. Not normal, but, you know, common, let's say. So that is the thing that disturbs me, being able to talk about it and write about it and examine it and give, given the opportunity to, to, make, to let other people talk about it and think about it too, that, that's, a, that's a good thing for me. I, so I don't feel, I, f I feel that the thing that I find very difficult and very troubling is not being able to think about these things, not being able to write about them. Um, yeah. Was that ending inevitable? And do you have any advice for writers to craft really compelling, intense endings such as that one? Yes, it was inevitable. Because the film 
is about the limits of revenge. But, you know, it's a revenge film about why revenge films aren't, you know, offer a kind of empty catharsis. Because the thing that I felt, I always felt so strongly about that kind of genre is that what it's asking is that women play men their own game, which is that, you know, women should resort to violence to combat violence, and that's not possible. So it's not fair to say, it's not fair to kind of imply that we could just like put on a nurse's uniform and shoot our way or stab our way out of this. It's not how it works. It's why it's so difficult is because of the kind of, you know, the biological kind of fact of being a woman. And so it felt to me that it was important to say there's a reason why we can't. There's a reason why we can't do these things. There's a reason why it's unfair to say, because it's, it's all part of the same thing. It's all the same, part of the same, why didn't you, why didn't you, why didn't you? So this movie shows why we don't, because you can't. And that's, that was very important to me. And, and, you know, it is very distressing because I loved Cassie so much. And, but, you know, there was no way in that room, which I'd visited so many times, there was no way, there was no way of winning in that, in that way. I, there was no, it was just, it wasn't possible and it wasn't honest or at least it didn't feel honest to me. So, so it was inevitable. Um, that's not to say that it was easy. That's not to say that everyone, you know, responded to it or liked it or, but, it was the, the thing that felt most kind of truthful to, to me. And, and, and not just that scene, but the fact that after that scene, we have the most broadly comic scene in the whole movie, which is a scene from films we've already seen before, which is, you know, two guys laughing about having killed a stripper at a bachelor party. And we've laughed as an audience. And the reason that that, 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 that scene is so broadly comic and why Max Greenfield's performance is so brilliant is that everyone laughs. Cassie's lying dead on the bed, you know, our protagonist who we love, and everyone laughs. Everyone laughs at that scene because we're just conditioned to. And so, you know, the whole film was sort of designed to ask, like, why are we laughing? What are we laughing at? Why is this funny? And it's a comedy, but it's a comedy that asks us you know, hopefully kind of why we're laughing. Um, so, so yeah, I suppose it, I suppose it was inevitable. Do you have any advice for other writers crafting compelling endings or is it more about answering a truth or where the story is going or how do you think about endings in general? Well, it, it just depends on the story. It depends on what story you're telling and, and so, with something like Saltburn, there's, you know, a little bit like Promising a Woman, there's the film that we think it's gonna be and then the film that it is, I suppose. And so, f for me, it's always not just, it, it, it's not just like what is the most, you know, compelling or what is the most, um, satisfying because often some of the best endings I think are kind of unsatisfying to some degree or leave you with questions 
But, you know, for Saltburn, for, for example, what I wanted was a feeling, and a feeling of joy, of evil glee, of total and utter sympathy for the devil, of kind of getting your blood up, of, of a feeling of, like, heart racing, like, sort of complicated pleasure, because it is a film about complicated pleasure. So that was kind of the driving force, too, of, of, is sort of what are we going to feel when we leave? How much does the story change for you in those seven years, or is it more that it just grows? Does it actually, the plot change in some of those things? Oh, absolutely, of course. It changes, you know, there are fixed points usually, you know, for Saltburn, the, the bathtub and shepherd's pie and the moth, those were fixed points. But there are enormous amount of things that change. Characters come and go, you know, whole people exist and then don't, you know, and it's a constant, it's a constant adjustment of plot. It's a constant adjustment of character. It's constantly going into those rooms and seeing what the most kind of interesting, you know, dynamic is. And, and it's also thinking as Oliver, you know, how would I, had I processed desire, you know, how would I get into a, to a, not just a world, but a kind of like system that is impossible to get into? Like, what are the seduction methods that I would employ? And that's the same for Cassie as it is for Oliver. Because, you know, with Cassie, I was always thinking, how would I get a teenage girl into my car without force? You know, it's quite simple, actually. You just need to think about it in the same way with Oliver. You know, how do I, if I'm, you know, from a sort of normal, happy, middle-class background, how do I make that interesting to people who are, who have a saviour complex? We're almost out of time. Do you have any advice for writers trying to break in today in terms of just being persistent and following through with their work and their ideas? It's so difficult because everyone's method is so different. So I don't, so I don't know that, but I, but I think that writing in whatever that takes, whether it's sort of literally typing or just thinking, you can't do too much of it. You just can't do too much. You have to just, you have to keep going even when it feels completely futile. And I think also not just having one thing that you sit going mad over, reworking, reworking, reworking. Leave it, do something different, try every different genre. Don't feel, don't feel self-conscious. It's so oppressive now, you know, the expectation that there's a kind of certain way of telling a story, not just writing it, but delivering it, that things have to kind of adhere to a certain sort of style or they have to be very subtle or they can't be this or they can't be that. None of that matters. Just, just write the things that you think are amusing, titillating or difficult. You know, don't worry about being... Give yourself permission to be bad. Give yourself permission to do something fun or cheesy or unsubtle. Doesn't matter, just, you know, something that brings you joy. It's likely to bring other people joy. 
Thanks so much for tuning into the show. Before you take off, I want to give you a free gift. I'm giving you my first book, Ink by the Barrel, for free. That's the digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com. Inside this book, you'll learn how to annihilate writer's block by embracing Elizabeth Gilbert's playful trickster mentality. You can learn to weaponize your anxiety with Kevin Kelly's different is better approach. And learn how to defend your time with Ryan Holiday's calendar anorexia mindset. There's just a few other ideas in the book, Ink by the Barrel. It's also based on over 400 interviews I've done right here on Creative Principles. So go steal that book right now, Ink by the Barrel, to learn how to be a prolific writer. You can get your copy that's digital download and audiobook at brockswinson.com, B-R-O-C-K-S-W-I-N-S-O-N.com. And if it's your first time here, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.